0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join Pastor Ben Teefy for his message. How you doing? You doing all right? Excellent. Listen, if we haven't met, do hang around after the service. Love to would love to have a chat and say hi. And uh, you're very welcome here, whether you're new, whether you're old, whether you're a regular. Um, we're talking about attendance, by the way, not how much fiber you're having in your diet. And, uh, but you are welcome. We are in week two of a series. You'll get that on the way home. It's okay. Listen, if we're going to play together this morning i just need you to smile at me okay i need you to realize it's okay to have a little bit of fun in church and it's okay i'm getting away from up the back there thank you have you had your hair done is that mary you got a new hairstyle looks smashing and uh, hey turn the person next to you and tell them that their hairstyle looks good today as well awesome very good some of us it's a bit hard our hair's been styling itself out of our head but that's all right that's all right god bless you we're in week two of a series through the book of Galatians and we began last week by looking at the fact that Paul was writing in a great deal of pain uh, and with a great deal of correction to the Galatian church, this church in south central Turkey that started off as a motley crew of people from all walks of backgrounds, all walks of life and all different backgrounds and uh, began to follow Jesus as Paul preached the gospel to them and a church was born. It's always an amazing thing when a church is born, when people come to know Christ, isn't it just amazing? Okay, okay, me and Sam are on the same page. Everybody else, maybe we'll just go for coffee and get excited about the things of God together, Sam. Uh, and uh, But some people came in from the outside. And they began to spread a new message, a tantalizing message. It was a tantalizing message because actually in one way, this false message had an amazing potential to help the Galatian believers with things that they were struggling with. They were struggling with the fact that they were such a motley crew. They were so different. Some of them were Jewish. Some of them were pagan. Some of them were circumcised. If you don't know what that is, it makes your eyes water when you think about it. Don't worry. Ask mum and dad on the way home. And, and um, some of them weren't circumcised. Some of them were from pagan Roman backgrounds. Some of them were slaves. Some of them were Roman military people who'd resettled in galatia after rome conquered the whole area and so you've got these these local local people and then their colonial colonizers coming in trying to displace them and and take their land and take their wealth and then you've got men and women they're against each other you've got greeks and jews and they're against each other and romans well everyone was against them except the romans (laughs) and you've got People from a completely crazy pagan background where their moral and ethical code was just like, even by today's standards, just crazy. And then you've got people who their moral and ethical code was very conservative. They were really good at following the rules. And they would just pat themselves every day saying, I'm one of Jesus' loved little children. I'm such a... Happy Vegemite, and and these, but they had a problem because they were such a motley crew that there was so much conflict in this community around the way to do life together, and would have just been so easy for them not to be a community, but instead just to be a whole bunch of different fragmented groups where their background and their history and and, and their identity divided them. Sounds a lot like what could happen to us, huh? Sounds a lot like what could happen in modern day Australia. Sounds a lot like what is happening in modern-day Australia is this phenomenon called identity politics seeks to damage the fabric of our community and seeks to damage with a terrible and evil ideology the fabric of our community by telling you some lies. And here is how the lies go. The lies go like this. Identify yourself by the way you're different from everybody else. Well, So, so I've got a big nose, so I'm part of the big nose group. And you know what? People aren't nice enough to us big nose people. For starters, hankies are only made this big. And when you've got a big nose... You know, I I go into the chemist and say, Hey, I need need some sun cream for my nose. And she says, You better go to Bunnings and get like a four litre tin. And a roller to put it on. Oh, it's hurt. People are just not nice enough to people with big noses. I go to the beach. You wouldn't know about this because you live in Alice Springs. But there are beaches in the world where the water is like there and the sand is there our beaches are like 1400 kilometers the sand starts from here and goes all the way to Adelaide and and you, I go to the beach and a family comes up and I'm just lying there sunbaking, just like you know gold chains on bikini out in the sun don't picture me like that. It's not very wholly immoral for you to come on you guys you're in church for a second here um and I go to the beach and a family comes up and they spread out their towel beside me I go do you mind if our kids play in the shade of your nose it's hurtful when you've got a big nose it's terrible You know, and and the world is unkind if you've got a big nose because every irritating microbe known to humanity finds its way up there and wreaks havoc. stirs up things and stuff happens and it's not good. The world is unkind. So so I'm part of the big nose crew. How many other fellow big nose crews are out there? Just a couple of us. I still think I trump everybody with their hands raised and 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 so um in our family there's always tension with our three daughters who are waiting to see will they look more like mummy's nose or daddy's nose when they grow up and i just say well you know you've read the story of pinocchio right you better be honest there because we've got a lot of genetic potential for swelling of the nasal cavity um and, and, and identity politics, what it seeks to do is... That's a stupid, jovial example. But actually, there are other examples. We can divide ourselves over our race. And you have a look around the room and see how many different racial groups are in the room. And I'm sure sometimes in, in, a, in a city like Alice Springs and in, in a church like this, sometimes the, the, the lie and the mistake and the evil deception would be to cause people to believe in our church... That you have to identify yourself primarily by the colour of your skin or your ethnic background. Because for a Christian, that is actually a huge lie. There are other things when you become a Christian that come to the center and the fore of your identity and who you are. And you are defined no longer by the things that this world defines you and me and itself and each other as. So you're not any longer defined as a white person or a black person or an in-between person, a caramel person. You're not defined as an Asian or an Aboriginal or an African or an Indian. Now, the beauty of the kingdom of God is you are allowed to celebrate that background you're allowed to celebrate your culture you should celebrate your culture you're allowed to be you The wonderful thing about the grace of God is to come to God you don't have to stop being you and try to be someone else you get to keep being you but you get to keep being you restored and redeemed and made in God's image so you're not defined about things about by things about you you are defined by the work of Christ in you and the identity gifted by the grace Grace of God for free, this word called grace, unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. It's a free gift, the Bible says. That's what grace is. It means you don't pay for it. And the gospel offers us a new identity and says, you, you could be any of those things, but don't be defined by a label. And the wonderful thing about not being defined by a label, man, woman, ethnicity. Class. Did you see the research just released in Australia last week that now Australia is a nation of six different classes? And they're like middle bogan is one of them, which I just thought was quite funny, but anyway. <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and see how thick their gold chains are. <laughs> Work out how middle bogan they are. And, 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 and it's this old game. It's this old game not- noticed, noticed by our friend Karl Marx that you can war with each other about your labels and you can view all of history and society as just a battle of your label group against their label group there's the battle of the sexes men and women and now according to the DMV there's a few other options (laughs) when you go to get your driver's license filled out in Queensland they've dealt with the battle of the sexes by removing gender from the driver's licenses um, which was pretty funny you, so the men and women can just be at war. And, and the identity politics is a narrative that says, define yourself by your label and, and, and draw identity from that label and then fight with all the other labels. That's what the result of identity politics is. And it's rampant in modern day Australia because, you know, I, I don't know if I define myself by someone who came from, well, well for starters, our family's Irish and we've been the butt of a lot of jokes, so now you should look at me with deep compassion, saying, not only do you have a big nose, but you're Irish. Every joke about dumb people contains the introductory phrase, an Irishman walked into a bar. Racist. Racist. I'm, I'm an Irish person. I have a big nose. I'm also left-handed. This is called the misfortune trifecta. I'm a man and according to identity politics that means I'm an evil misogynist oppressor only seeking to destroy the lives of women probably starting with the four that live in my own household <laughs> according to the narrative of identity politics and then my skin's pale Rupert, yeah, Rupert's looking at me going mm-hmm. <laughs> yes you are I'm surprised you didn't go Oprah Winfrey on me Rupert And so then because my skin's white, I'm part of another narrative that says I must be racist and must not like anybody that has a different color skin. See what our world does? It fractures and it divides. And it sorts you. And when it's sorting you, it puts you in a little pigeonhole and says, that's your pigeonhole. And stay in your pigeonhole. There's a lot of fights and there's actually a lot of history about the fights happen about all the different pigeonholes vying and trying for control. But see, what the gospel does is the gospel comes to human life and says, you, you might be Irish, big nose, left-handed, can't change a tyre. Oh, man, it gets worse. <laughs> left-handed. what the gospel does. The gospel says you can be all that stuff, even a Queenslander. to throw at the next heckler (laughs) is it going to be you you look like you got something on your mind now's the time to say it pal while i've got the microphone and you don't because my label is 40 year old man and that's my wife up the back going "Uh uh-huh old man honey and 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 your label is like teenage adolescent i was going to say boy but you're such a specimen of masculinity that you're an adolescent you're like a person on the journey to manhood and it's really cool so so we could fight about our labels not we're not going to peace man um the world will divide us up and it's funny we laugh so much because it's actually what happens all over our society and our culture and it's not new paul was writing to the galatians because the galatians could easily have divided themselves up Think about this. How much like Alice Springs is this? There were people who were native born to Galatia, the south-central Turkey region, and then it was invaded by Rome, and they were smashed and decimated, their language and culture replaced by Roman culture, by Greek-speaking language. And then people who had lived for centuries in that land were shoved aside as Rome started importing people and colonising people there. And, and, and a couple of generations later, everybody's just supposed to live in peace and forget the past and everything that happened. And here they all, they turn up to church together. Imagine, they could have continued all of the war that was going on outside in the city. They could have continued it in the church. And in fact, they probably did because you know what people are like. Let me rephrase that. You know what you're like. You know what I'm like. Being a human is incredibly complex because we're very dumb, aren't we? It doesn't make sense the way we act sometimes and the way we behave. And so this church is trying to learn. So somebody came in with a great idea and and these people came from Jerusalem. They were Jewish people from Jerusalem and they believed in all the big top 10, all, all the big Jewish laws. And the first one was, well, listen, if you want to be a fully fledged member of God's family and be accepted to him and be saved and live in God, then what you have to do is you have to drop all of your old identity. Hey, that's actually really good advice. Not be defined by your old identity. It's very good advice. But this is what they said. Drop your old identity and embrace our identity called being Jewish. And the men, this is how the altar call goes. All right, fellas. Ladies, you might want to re- re- go, leave the room for this next ministry session. Men, line up this way. The tissues are on supply. That, that's, that's the altar call for people who want to be part of God's family. But the Galatian church, see, they wrestled so much with um, their their identity and their fragmentation that it was actually what seems like a ludicrous idea became a compelling temptation. Embrace law. Embrace rules. Because if you embrace law and embrace rules, you might drop that culture, but come and be part of a completely different culture that is foreign to you and follow our rules, and then we'll all be the same. It'll be called uniformity. There won't be diversity. There won't be difference. We'll all be the same. And we'll all be following the right rules. Almost sounds ingenious, doesn't it? That that's, that's called religion. That's what religion seeks to do as a force. And it's what religiosity does in communities. Because there's a balance that one has to walk. And the balance on the one hand is, I, I can acknowledge my ethnicity as an Irish person and cheer in the soccer. And what else do we do that's productive? Drink that's what That's what we do. So I can do that. Um, and, and I can be a proud left-hander and say, ha-ha, when you dissect my brain, you won't know where my language center is because on left handers it's different for every left-hander, but on right-handers, it's in the same place of every brain all the time. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, righties? We're unpredictable. We're surprising, us left-handers. I can be proud about that. I can be proud about being a man. I can be proud about being a teefy. I can be proud about... I can, I can embrace my identity. But see, embracing it is different to being defined by it. And what I should never do is in the act of embracing it, be defined by it. Because then if I am defined by it, then I have to look at you and now define you by those things too. And if you're defined by that and I'm defined by this, then we are different. And our identities cannot mesh together. And we... We have to be at war. By the way, I'm not saying we have to be at war. This is like quotation marks. This is called a sketch of socio-political human history. Identity politics. Let's define ourselves by our labels. And so then what religion does is religion says, well, rather than define yourself by these labels, let me give you one grand label for you to define yourself by. And the problem with that, it's the wrong label. But it's greatly tempting because it does kind of solve some of the issues that humans face. That's why it's an actual temptation. And Paul had a counter idea to that. And the counter idea to that was don't stop being Greek, don't stop being Roman, don't stop being African, don't stop being black, don't stop being white, don't stop being male, don't stop being female. But do stop identifying yourself primarily by those things and instead say yes to the gospel message and identify yourself by Christ. And this is what's amazing about Jesus. It's what's amazing about Jesus. This is why the grace of God is only God's grace and there's no other idea in the philosophical realm that comes close to this idea of grace, which is this. Be you. Be exactly you. Don't change. Don't change. Don't do anything. Don't jump through a hoop. Don't perform. Instead, receive my gift called the gospel. And when you receive my gift to the gospel, that's what you do. The only, I teach my kids the only appropriate response to a gift is grateful receptance. See, it's so offensive, isn't it, if you come to my house for my birthday and then you give me a nice gift. Thank you, by the way. I'm looking forward to it. And, and you give me that gift. How offended would you be? If I say, this is awesome, I love this gift, hey, can I get the receipt so I can reimburse you for it? My 14-year-old daughter's like, actually, Dad, that's a great idea. Can you do that at the next birthday? Um, but, but that's offensive to us, isn't it? Because it then not, isn't a gift anymore, it's a purchase, it's transactional. And so what I'm doing is I'm insulting your gift if I try to pay for it or try to reimburse you rather than receiving it. How, how wonderful is it? Jesus was right when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So let me help you. Give me gifts. (laughs) Um, We take the gift of the gospel. Paul had a counter-proposal. Take this gift of the gospel and then something will happen to you deep in the core of who you are, in your soul, in your spirit, at the intersection of your spirituality, your physicality, and your psychology, something will change at the core of who you are and what makes you you. And by the way, Dr. Seuss said it best, no one is youer than you. So be that person. Because everyone else is taken. But anyway, at the core of what makes you, you, Jesus will come in and inhabit that place and say, now I am gifting you a new identity. And this is what that identity is. person like Jesus. Child of God. Redeemed. Fresh start salvation, forgiven, no longer defined by the past, before the new identity comes, I'm a sinner, I'm I'm, I'm a pretty bad sinner, always have been, my whole life a sinnerholic, But see what happens is when I say yes to Jesus, he comes and says, no no longer a sinner, now justified, now made right, made right with God, made right from sin, made right from all the stuff that's been wrong that made you the sinner in the first place. No longer defined by your shame and your mistakes and your behaviors. No longer defined by any label the world could put on you. Paul said it best this way to the Galatian church when he's trying to tell them, guys, don't fall for the lie that there's more hoops you've got to jump through and that you've got to go and get the Jewish identity markers and, and change. Don't fall for the lie. Paul actually says this, don't get bewitched. It's not just a lie, it's like witchcraft. It's like a crazy spell that some, you know, a, a wicked witch would come in and fly in on her broom and wave a magic wand over you and take you into bondage. That's actually as bad as what it is to. To define yourself by other things including any hoop that must be jumped through to make yourself acceptable to God but it's so native to us to want to jump through hoops and to want to perform and so our lives if we don't keep listening to and hearing and preaching and receiving and responding to the gospel every day I preach the gospel to myself every day I preach it to my wife and kids every day Maybe it's not actually preaching, maybe it's thinking, maybe it's singing, maybe it's reading, but I'm always percolating in the gospel. You know, the gospel is not like the simple ABCs of the Christian life that you should ever move on from. There's a friend of mine, Pastor Robert Morris, who's a pastor in the US, and he's a very generous person, gives huge and extravagant uh, gifts to mission, and, and if he ever gets anything great, he doesn't have it for very long because he wants someone else to be blessed by it. Someone will come and give him a, a nice watch as a gift, and he'll love that watch, and then he'll see someone and go, you know what, you'll love this watch too, and give it to them. And he's just an amazingly, freakishly strange, generous individual who cannot seem to ever keep anything. And his wife explains his behavior this way because she knows basically if it's in his hand, it's not going to be with us very long. And somebody said to her, Don't, you know, how do you live with this? How do you live with the uncertainty of knowing, hey, we just got a new car. Well, he gave it to a missionary. And she says, I, I've, I've learned to live with it because I appreciate the fact that Robert has never gotten over the gospel. And I thought to myself, that's good theology. Hey, if you've gotten over the gospel, maybe it's time to get back under it again. Maybe it's time just to sit this morning in an idea that says you could identify yourself all sorts of different ways and be split up and divided and labeled by the world. And you could be at war with everybody if you wanted to. In Alice Springs, we've got so much potential because there's history of hurt and pain and there's all sorts of divisions in this town, isn't there? Historical ones and ones that are still happening now. But what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to bring us together where we can all embrace our identity but not be defined by it and not judge each other by those labels but be defined by something different. This is how Paul said it to them in the first chapter of Galatians, verse 3 onwards. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue, everybody say rescue, rescue, to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We talked last week about the idea of grace as both God's unmerited favor and his undeserved kindness, the preceder to the gospel, the reception of his transforming grace which is not just God's favor but then because there's God's favor grace includes the activity of God with it that's why we say God's grace is on you God being gracious towards you is the power of God's spirit personally coming and moving in your life in response to his grace Paul uses this other word peace everybody say the word peace now once upon a time I was just a long-haired dreadlocked hippie smoking weed on the beach of Byron Bay And for me, peace just simply meant this feeling of serenity that I felt when I was high. And then I got into Buddhism and transcendental meditation, all sorts of weird stuff. And then peace was all sorts of of, of crazy things. And still in this world, you know, sometimes we misunderstand what peace is. On the one hand, peace is just the, okay, we want peace. That means no one's shooting each other. Can we have peace? And on the other hand, it's like this inner transcendent feeling peace man we're just zen about life and uh, when the bible uses the word peace it doesn't mean either of those two things it means something far more dramatic and magnificent than that And, of course, the difficulty with the Bible is you can never go one word through the Bible without needing to deviate for quite a few hours of time to understand what that word is really saying to us in this day and age because we have drifted so far from understanding the Bible that even you could be a Christian 50 years and still not understand some of this stuff. So here's what has to happen. Paul says this, grace and peace to you. In the Greek, it's always the same. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't get much of a better summary of the gospel message than that. That first of all, there's grace. And because there's grace, now there's peace. Peace. The Bible word, peace. How many Irene's are in the room? Irene. Your name, Irene, comes from the Greek word for peace. Irene. Peace. And the Greek word for peace comes from the Hebrew word for peace, which is? Shalom. And uh, it's the way Hebrew people would say hello and say goodbye. And some of you, when you email me, Margaret Ellis is one of them. Shalom, Pastor Ben. And I, every time I read that, I'm like, you go, girlfriend. It's just the right way to talk to people. It's gospel language. Shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. And it doesn't just mean an inner state of Zen peace because you're a hippie on a beach with dreadlocks. I think the the philosopher Cornelius Plantinger, and if you're a thoughtful Christian and you haven't read any of his stuff, do yourself a favor. He describes and defines the biblical word peace this way. It is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than the peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom is all the way things ought to be that's a wonderful definition and so listen to Paul's idea in counter response to you being a victim of identity politics and just being a label and then warring with others on on that label and then to you then defining yourself by that identity and dropping it and becoming a Jewish person following the Jewish law or any other religious outlook or any other law or any other rules or any other regulations to please God Paul's proposal is this grace to you God's unmerited favor to you. The gift of the gospel undeserved and unpaid for to you. And because of that gospel, peace to you. Peace to you. The beginning of a new season of life to you. The beginning of a new chapter of life to you. The beginning of a new state of being to you. The beginning of a life walking out and living in the flourishing shalom of God, the creator of heaven and earth to you. This is what God desires for the human race. God's not a killjoy. He's not trying to wreck your fun. He's not trying to oppress you. He's not trying to keep you down. What God's trying to do is help you be the very best version of you that He conceived of when He made you. Grace to you, the transforming grace of God. And because of grace, peace to you a new ability implanted within you that will be like a virus being installed on the hard drive of your life that will then go through every pocket and sector of your life and begin to produce fruit. Fruit that is flourishing fruit. Here's what it looks like. Love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and kindness and self-control. That's a good list, man. If, if you haven't, like I have, ever bottled to, battled to give up addiction to drugs and alcohol, you better believe what you need is the flourishing nature of God to be implanted deeply in your soul so that you can have self-control. I mean, some of you, some of you are just amazing people and you, you feel like you're good enough on your own. I'm good enough with my self-control. I met a businessman once and I was sharing the gospel with him. And he said, well, I, I just decided to give up smoking and drinking and I did like that. And I don't need God to do that. And I said, you are pretty amazing. But you still need God, because you have other ways in life where you're not amazing. But you're probably not going to tell me about it, and you do too. But every night when your head hits the pillow and you look up at the roof and you think, you just sometimes when your brain's doing nothing, you then start to be very conscious of your shortcomings and your weaknesses. And I don't expect you to come into church and like be completely open with everybody about what your problems are. But you know, just give yourself some space and understand there are some problems. You're not perfect. I'll I'll think you are if you want me to think you are but I know that you're not because I know that you can't be and I know that you can't be but that's not a reason for you to not feel comfortable here. It's not a reason for you to not come. It's not a reason for you to not be part of the church and it's not a reason for you not to receive the gospel. It's a great reason to receive the gospel. The Bible says that we're actually all the same. Paul phrases it this way. First of all, there's grace, then there's peace and then he will explain to you in this passage why that is. Here's his explanation. Grace and peace from God, our Father. See, that's a change of identity because once upon a time, you can't describe God as your Father unless you are God's child. You can describe God as someone else's Father, God as Jesus' Father, But for God to be your father, you must first come through the archway that says, I'm a recipient of grace and peace by saying yes to the gospel. What do I have to sign? No, you don't sign. You allow God to, you invite him in and accept his work of grace. And when you do that, he says, oh, this is so great. Because when you say yes to me, now what I get to do is I get to adopt you as my child. You know how Jesus is my child? Well, now you're like that. I don't think you understand. You know how Jesus is God's child and can pray and have his prayers answered and walk with God and know God in relationship, which was what everybody thought was so weird about Jesus. He actually related to God and everyone else just had religion. And of course they got mad and wanted to kill him because he really makes religion look bad when he just goes and turns water into wine and all sorts of weird stuff like that. And so... so, so Jesus is God's child and then Jesus comes and says I offer you in exchange I'll die on the cross and I'll absorb your sinful identity into me and then I'll make you this free offer called grace and peace where you can now if your identity is absorbed onto the cross then I will give you the victorious resurrected identity of Jesus and we'll swap identities. It's called substitutionary atonement. Jesus dies in my place and takes upon himself all of my sin and my brokenness and my shame and my darkness and my wickedness. And boy, there's a lot of that to take. But you know how I feel because it's you too, huh? So we swap And then because we swap, now what's true of Jesus is true of the person who says yes to the gospel. That's why Paul can say, yes, grace and peace from God, our Father. Which is the most Christian way to pray according to Jesus. All Christian prayer starts this way. Our Father. So wonderful i get to be like jesus but i'm not as good as jesus i know what a great deal is this but i'm, I'm I, there's nothing about me in my natural normal state that's as great as jesus i know this is why this is an insanely good deal this gospel offer you don't look like you believe in the insanity of the goodness of of of, of the deal because of god our father it's from god our father and the lord jesus christ and why why how how because the lord jesus christ verse 4 who gave himself for our sins everyone say the word sin let's just get it over and done with and rip that band-aid off just say sin now say it with an element of disgust like because you know you feel disgusted when you say the word i believe it must be an onomatopoetic word in the english language which means that it you know like the word bang it means it means what it sounds like and so you've got to say the word sin with some element of disgust sin see when you say it the way it's written it's like it's like that it's built into the word to create the primate disgust response sin it's a horrible word so we don't you hate being thinking about sin And your own sin there's some sins you really like thinking about not talking about those ones i'm meaning like just when it comes to if i said to you you're a sinner isn't that an uncomfortable feeling our world hates the word sin and and they should hate the word sin because it's horrible sin is an archery term and it means this that that there's a contest and there's a target over there and you take an arrow you, you draw your bow and you shoot at the target but you miss the target you miss the mark you might have had your best shot you might have been totally careless what matters isn't the process what matters is the trajectory you didn't hit the target man Now, I don't know why humans have made sin such a dirty word and and, and, and a culturally unacceptable word, because the truth of the matter is everybody who has intelligently and seriously grappled with the human condition understands whatever label they call it, that in some way, way, shape or form, humans are weak and fallen and frail, and and we're capable of wonderful, good, but terrible evil, aren't we? Don't, Don't you love people in your life and then accidentally hurt them and you say to yourself, man, I blew it. Don't you make New Year's resolutions and then by day three you're back on the cake and the turkey? (laughs) How many times? I tell you, I reckon I I, I was an expert at giving up smoking. I reckon I did that 58 times. can't tell you how many hundreds of dollars went in the rubbish bin every time I had a a self-control moment. I'm going to get off these smokes, throw them away. 24 hours later, back in the bin, ferreting through, following people down the street smoking. (laughs) Because I'm... We can fallen and to be human it is to be weak and fallen the bible teaches us but it's not just the bible that teaches us that you should check out what Carl Jung said about being a human check out what psychoanalysts said about being a human but part of being a human is actually understanding and recognizing that there's stuff wrong with you so our whole culture wants to live in this problem of denial don't tell me there's something wrong with me but we live in the existential malady that in fact there is something wrong with us and you've even said it to yourself what is wrong with me because you have the tendency to miss the mark. We do that. To, to, to be human is to, have the, to be born into that condition. Three psychologists in 1989 did a study on the idea of sin. Their names were Morris, Watson and Hood, which sounds like a great ditty from Fantastic Mr. Fox. Morris Watson Watson, and Hood, they conducted a peer-reviewed psychological study at the University of Tennessee. That's where Jack lives. And the study looked into the effects of a person's view of sin, good and evil, and human nature, and how that impacted their well-being and society's well-being. This is what they find. The findings surprised everybody. Several hypotheses existed before the study, which was basically, these hypotheses predicted that if you shared the orthodox Christian view of sin, that that would make you more guilty, more judgmental, and more condemnatory of yourself and others. That was the existing hypothesis. But the study showed, which was peer-reviewed, that above all approaches, orthodox Christian beliefs about sin and grace were found to be associated with increased social sensitivity, less depression, less hopelessness, less anxiety, and greater empathy. Orthodox Christian beliefs fall in between alternative beliefs, such as optimistic anthropology, which means you just believe humans are fine and there's no such thing as sin and evil. Or pessimistic anthropology, that where you believe humans are totally evil and bas- basically there's fatalism, where you don't think anything can be done about it. And, and they found orthodox views of sin fall in between those two things. And to believe one of these two other views creates a cancer called perfectionism. Perfectionism, where you have such high and lofty standards for yourself and others are an incredibly judgmental and incredibly critical of yourself and others and destined therefore to live anxious and disappointed because you, yourself and nobody else can live up to your standards of perfection. These beliefs also lead to social Darwinism, where those who don't measure up are marginalised. And where these views that are contrary to Christian thought, they are all associated with more anxiety, more depression, less well-being, more guilt, more shame, and more judgmentalism, more criticism of others. And they conclude in the study that the Christian worldview is a balanced anthropology that sees humans as basically good made in God's image, but basically fallen, tainted by sin, and haven't lived up to their full potential to be as good as they could be. Humans are viewed in the Christian worldview with the disposition to fall short of God's perfect plan and his character. And that also leads them to resist God's divine restoration of their nature and resist the harmony that God wants to bring. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.